Welcome to the Prima Donna podcast. I'm Nat Grant, a composer from Australia, interested in the connection between storytelling, memory and sound. In this series, I'm making what I've called sonic portraits, pictures of women who I consider to be my artistic elders, Australian artists from a range of disciplines who've had incredible careers and should be more well known. The portraits comprise interview recordings collaged with my own original music. For more info, check out primadonnapodcast.com. The second portrait is of performance artist Robin Laurie. Robin was heavily involved in establishing the Pram Factory, the Australian Performers Group, the First Victorian Women's Circus and Circus Oz. She's a trombone-playing, Feldenkrais-practicing comedic legend, and we begin the interview talking about the Melbourne Theatre Institution that was the Pram Factory. Well, where will I begin with the Pram Factory? I'd been overseas, 67, 68, and came back in 69, and La Mama had started. And so there were a lot of people I knew from Melbourne Uni, from the Drama Society and the Film Society, were all doing things there. So I did things with them during that year. Bill Garner called it at one stage um, the cultural town hall of Carlton, which I thought was a great description because it was the sort of centre of all sorts of activity. And we hated the idea of directors and we did a lot of devising of work and we were very interested in the Australian voice. La La Mama were also doing things at the pram. But the pram was very much an actor's space. So it was part of that whole 1960s movement of decolonisation. So of offering the sort of coloniser and the sort of cultural domination of that. So we were interested in that voice. And, and there was one thread of that was the idea of the larrikin. But that was a very masculinist idea, really. The part that I liked of that was the part that was very irreverent and rude about pompous authority and so comedy was always a really big part of everything we did there. Comedy can be quite subversive and dangerous I think as well as necessary for, for survival. I always think if you don't laugh you, you die and I've also always thought that in some ways capitalism and consumerism is a system that breeds despair because no matter how many thing, things you accumulate it, they never satisfy a, a human hunger that we have for something more and so it seemed to me that creativity and cultural and artistic practices can foster and feed that so we were trying to do that really at the Pram Factory through all sorts of different methods.
at the pram, there was there was criticism that feminism was being discussed uh, passionately, and there were a series of discussions about casting and how playwrights were often writing plays that had, you know, seven men and one woman or five men and two women, very occasionally three women and four men. And so there was a strong critique of that. There was a group of women did a show called Betty Can Jump, which did very well. I wasn't part of the pram factory then. I was teaching film and television at Melbourne State College, which was the teacher's college that was part of next to Melbourne Uni. Um, and then I think with 74 or 75, I'd become involved with the Pram Factory again through um, a film that was made by Bert Dilling called Dalmas and involved a group called Tribe that had been working at the um, La, La Mama at the same time as us in 69. And I worked on a piece, a Peter Hankey piece called um, Ride Across Lake Constance and Red Simons and Jane Clifton and Alan Robertson were in it. Then I became involved with the Pram Factory, but I was always involved with devised work. I never wanted to be an actor. I always thought, I sort of felt I couldn't stand the idea of sitting around waiting for the phone to ring or dragging yourself around to agents and having to do auditions and being judged in that way. And I was very interested also in the group creative process, that process where something happens with a group of people that can't happen with an individual and I really liked that. Ideas and, and things occur that, that you would never dream up by, by, yourself. by yourself. Something, something yeah, is, is made, is in, made that process, in that process, which, which I, love. I love. And I, actually, and I, actually, love, and the I love the process, process as well. That, as well that, that unknowing, unknowing that, I call it sort of, it sort of floating, in, floating the in the sea of unknowing, which is scary, scary but good. At the Pram, we had a women's theatre group, 74. And that was connected also to, um, there was a community theatre movement began at that stage because we really wanted to take performance out of the building and into the streets and into the parks and into places where people worked and into schools. And we also wanted performance to break down that sense of the fourth wall, that sense of engagement. People were doing that in all sorts of things. Musicians were doing that as well, walking amongst the audience and doing all of those sorts of things. Um, so we were very interested in those processes. We did a lot of research. We, we researched the history of revolutions in cultural and social practice. So we were interested in what had happened during the Russian Revolution when the blue train had taken artists all through the countryside. Um, we were interested in people like Meyerhold, who was a Russian director. 
And of course, we're interested in Brecht and Piscator and all those people out of Germany in the 30s. And we were influenced by what was going on in the United States and in Europe as well in the 60s. And there were collective groups like the Living Theatre and Richard Schechner's performance group in the 70s. And there was a magazine called um, the, the TDR, the Drama Review, and things were written about in there. And we, our work was never actually written about in there. And there's something about being written down sometimes which makes you think something might be better or more important. Anyway, in 75, three of us went on a tour to, um, to the United States and to England to check out our heroes. And we saw lots of work. We visited the Living Theatre. We drove an old combi van along the Rio Grande you know, and then up through the United States with long-haired hippies and were stopped by big, fat, sweating policemen in the South. It was a bit scary. What I realised was that their work wasn't any better than ours. And that was great. That was very um, encouraging. Working along similar paths, similar interests, but it wasn't any better. And... Um, so that was great. And then the Pram Factory had all these different streams and to go back to the women's theatre group, we did, it was like, it was a review really, it was sketches. It was comedy sketches of various kinds. And some of them were um, very simple. I, I played a character called Dictator who was dressed as a paper mache potato. <laughs> People did different sketches and it was a huge hit. There were queues around the block to get in. And then the women's theatre group continued after that. But some of us um, went into other activities of various kinds. And that was good, really, to begin something and then it can take on a life of its own is great, I think. And to be able to let go at that point is also important. Out of the women's theatre group also came the Migrant Women's Show. We'd been very interested in language too as part of a way of com communicating um, with a wide range of people who didn't necessarily come to the theatre, English-based theatre, but who had a cultural relationship with performance of different kinds, the Italians and the Greeks in particular at that stage. So we learnt songs in Greek and Italian and in the Migrant Women's Show, we took them into factories. We toured around with that. That was a, a show about equal pay. And, and then in Soapbox Circus, we continued doing that too. There were two people at the Pram Factory, Bill and Lorna Hannon, who were both teachers. And they were very active in um, community schools and also in encouraging the use of different languages in teaching and, 
And so they were a part of that as well. And then in 75, we had a visit from Jill Jolliffe, who was a journalist who'd been in East Timor when the Indonesians invaded. And so we decided we'd do a show about the invasion of East Timor using Meyerhold's biomechanics. And that was sort of the beginnings of Soapbox Circus. And during that time too, because there were big uh, anti-Vietnam War demos, anti-nuclear demonstrations, a whole series of things, we would often get asked to perform at those sorts of events. So we performed to huge outdoor groups on big stages, you know, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, which is, it's a buzz. <laughs> There's so much energy comes back you know, and goes out. It's, um, it's extraordinary, really. Then Soapbox Circus, we'd met up with Mick Conway and the Captain Matchbox Whoopee Band and we were learning how to, um, we were practising fairly low level tumbling on old inner spring mattresses in the Carlton Gardens and they came along, so Mick came along and a couple of other people and they wanted to be a part of that. And then out of that came Soapbox Circus and that was the beginnings here of Circus Oz and that went for about two years. And we performed in parks and for demonstrations and did shows at the pram for supper shows and things like that. Did shows in factories. And I was surprised that, you know, people only got 20 minutes or half an hour for lunch. I, um, and sometimes people were a bit cranky, I think, that we were there taking up their valuable lunch time. <laughs> Um, but other people enjoyed it, so that was a, an interesting ex experiment. And we did the Timor show around a lot as well. And I suppose, despite everything, the Timor show was the first time that I, and Jill Jolliffe coming and talking, that it made Australia's relationship with Asia live for me. I, I, I had a really... Um, even though, you know, there's a huge history of in interaction, especially between in Indonesia and Australia, there was all that activity by the Waterside Workers' Union when Indonesia was trying to be independent in the late 40s after the Second World War. And then Pram Factory was still going along and Soapbox was a Pram Factory project. So the pram factory by then was probably about 50 people. So they were collective, we were a collective. And there were collective meetings and they were um, raucous and wild. I was the chair for a while. Lorna Hannon used to spin, people used to get drunk. There's a lot of shouting. Um, but, you know, it went on. <laughs> and, and there were, inevitably, there were particular interest groups and particular streams. There were people who were interested in, in plays and playwriting, and there were people who were interested in devised work. There was a group called Night Shift who were interested in um, work from Germany, quite very uh, 
what would you call it, radical avant-garde perf performance work from Germany. I performed in a piece with Wilbur Wilde doing the soundtrack on the sax about a double agent in 1905 in Russia who, who was a provocateur and encouraged people to set off more bombs so they could get more money to resist uh, so that so that the police or security organisation could get more funding in order to put more pressure on the resistance groups. These different streams were all going along, and the musical stream as well. The, the connection with music had always been really strong, and I think particularly for us who while I'm a reader and I love words, I was also very interested in non-verbal com communication, the sort of the kinesthetic qualities of communication and, and the physicality of the circus and music go together, like dance and music really. But what's good about circus is you can do anything, so you can speak and be stupid. And, um, so those streams within the pram factory were all very rich and, and were sometimes competing for money. That's what some of the most raucous collective meetings were about. But then there was a woman, an American woman, wrote a little pamphlet that came out called The Tyranny of Structurelessness. And that was quite influential because she said in organisations that don't actually have formal structures and accountability for different roles, there's little cliques formed and, and they have power bases and some are actually more powerful than others. And, and so there's, a, but there's, there's no way of addressing that because in theory, everybody's supposed to be equal. And so that was a very enlightening uh, pamphlet really and a different way of looking at things like that. And um, so after that, I think that we started, there was a move to begin to sort of streamline and, and also to, articulate that there were in fact different functions that different people were carrying out and if they carried them out well or badly then people could comment on them and so that was a useful way of beginning to I guess deconstruct the sense that everybody is totally equal and has to be able to do everything because you can't it doesn't work like that and then Soapbox was formed with that uh, group from Adelaide called New, New Circus, and that was also a pram factory project. So in the beginning, the funding that the pram factory got underpinned Soapbox Circus and then Circus Oz. And um, for the, I don't know if exactly for how long, at least the first year or two. And we made money from box office and we our first two gigs were at Moomba and the Adelaide Festival and we sold them a show in a tent and we didn't have a tent but we made the tent <laughs> in the, and by that time the panel beaters had left so we had the basement of the pram factory as well so we sewed the tent it was like making the pyramids with these giant rolls of canvas going through these two industrial machines and then somebody met a Chilean welder on the street who came in and helped Tim and Jim weld up the poles for the tent. So they were, there were all sorts of um, 
connections that happen. One of the first per people who taught us acrobatics in the park was a Moroccan ac acrobat that Michael Price had met in the street who came along. It grew in mysterious ways because there weren't, we didn't have teachers at that point. We, and uh, we knew we could do it all ourselves. So we learnt by doing. Okay. Um, why don't we start? Um, you were telling me about playing trombone in the circus. Yes. What a beautiful instrument the trombone is. <laughs> and I wasn't very musical. I was removed from the choir at school. And I'd always thought I didn't know how to sing, you know, or play music. And then in the circus, we decided that we would all like to play musical instruments and we'd seen a Spanish circus, a boys circus that came and they'd all done that. So we got very keen on that idea and so I went and several of us learnt brass instruments so they were mobile and portable and we could do parades and things like that. And we learnt from a woman called Sue Brady who was a tuba player who was fantastic and quite eccentric. She wanted to be a Formula One driver, really, but she played the tuba in the meantime. And Sue Bradley? Bradley, yes. Oh, oh yes, yes. Well, she taught all of us brass. And um, so I learned from her. I learned to read, you know, very slowly. Well, once we started at Circus Oz and we had a whole lot of time off, I think in 1980. I did a term out at La Trobe University at their music school, which was a fabulous school at that stage. Les Gilbert was there, Warren Burt, John McCackie. It was really great. And so we were allowed to play, really, with lots of different musical forms. And I was in introduced to a whole lot of different um, musical history, which was great. So. And I loved the trombone. I loved the range. And I, but originally I'd chosen it because I thought it was funny, you know, because you can go like that and you can also knock people's hats off and you can do things with the slide. But I came to really love it. And we had a musical director, Andrew Bell, in the beginning who would write pieces for, it, for us that were just a little bit hard for us to play. So we had to practice and we also had to, you know, keep upping our skill level, which was also great. And I was also lucky because I learned music playing with other people. So I did practice by myself, but I didn't have to practice by myself all the time and not have any experience of playing in a group. So I think that was an ideal way to do it really for me anyway. And then when I left Circus Oz, I played in a little band called, in Sydney called the Mambologists. And we played Latin American music. And then uh, I sort of drifted away really and did other things. I'd been part of La Mama in 1969. And then I had a boyfriend avoiding the draft. And so we went to India. 
And when I came back, I met somebody who thought I knew all about drugs. I would know all about drugs because I'd been to India. But I'd done a double psych degree at Melbourne Uni in the mid-60s. And I got a job running the crisis centre at the Buoyancy Foundation, which was a drug, still going actually. It was a drug rehabilitation centre. It was up in Drummond Street. And it had been started by a priest called Father Jim Brennan. And I did a lot of work um, getting people out of jail, going to the watch house, visiting people who'd been put in mental institutions of various kinds, and also ran the sort of crisis centre or the reception centre and directed people where they needed to go. I was a part of that. I worked on a film called Dalmas. I'd always, I'd been part of the Melbourne University Film Society. I'd been the president of that in 1966. And so I was a film buff and I'd made little Super 8 movies and things. And in 1972 or 73, we made Dalmas, which was Australia's first acid movie. And so I worked on that with a lot of people from La Mama and Bert Dealing was the director. That was when I started to learn about filming. That was, I had a Super 8 and made a couple of little Super 8s. I'm a, I'm, I made a 16 mil actually at that stage. Someone must have had a, a little portable 16 mil camera and um, I made a film about a chook from outer space called Cosmo Chook. And I made a, um, I think I was interested in, uh, at that point too, just in terms of culture, it was like a, an alien viewpoint on our culture as you know that thing where you go to another world and you look at it from the outside and you see things that people inside it can't see don't see so I think it was that a bit of that and then we made a documentary Chris Maudson and I made a doco called Monash 66 the Monash postgraduate students employed us to make a film and that was influenced by um, Jean Rouche and Edgar Morin. They'd made a film about um, the Algerian War in France and they'd done it by interviewing people in all different contexts and, and talking to them as they walked or people thinking as they walked or filming conversations around tables and things. So we used a format like that, which isn't unusual now. And they were interested in what the difference between high school and university was so that trying to enable people who were making the transition to make it more easily. And the filmmakers co-op, have we talked about them? Ah, no, we haven't. Ah, that was another, that was probably mid-70s. And John Hughes was involved in that, Bert Dealing, who made Dalmas. There was, it was like, I don't know if it happens so much now, but there was... A real, um, there was a lot of fusion, there was a lot of interaction between art forms. There was this huge sort of cultural melting pot and bands played there. Well, we had supper clubs and bands played there at, at, on a Friday and Saturday night. Skyhooks, the first version of Skyhooks played there. Bands came over from Adelaide. Um, so there were, so the filmmakers co-op, the energy of that was sort of connected, I guess, to the idea of, of you know, workers' control, of, of having some sort of control over your own productions. 
and wanting to control them and to have a space and also to control the dis distribution. There's been various attempts, haven't there, over the decades to have some sort of control over putting your own work out. And also to provide su support. And when Margot and I made We Aim to Please, John Hughes was filming something else and he'd lend us his 16mm Bolex when he wasn't using it. So, And Margot knew how to use that, so we'd film each other doing things. So it was, very, it was a very fertile uh, period as well in terms of the interaction of, of the ideas and the art forms. And the, because we thought we were creating a new world... <laughs> so grandiose we it was like there were no rules you know so we could do anything really circus oz was sort of like community theater but it didn't have the community in it but what i really liked about it was that the audience is alive you know and they're around the performance so they, they see, see each, each other, other responding and reacting to things and it, and it creates this some sort of a sense that we're all in it together. And I, I had two main characters apart from the group acts in Circus Oz. One was a character called Joni Spagoni, who wore a sort of pink tutu and an army jacket and a colonel's army hat. And, and that was a sort of a satire really, or a comment on, on the military attire of the men who trained the lions and the camels and things. And she had sort of high heel pink shoes with fluff on them, but um, army gaiters on top of that. And, and she was a character who thought she knew that being the beautiful assistant was a really degraded form, but she knew that she had to do it. She let the audience know that she knew what she had to do, but that she hated it. So there was her. And then I had another character called Igor, who was a sort of laboratory creation of a mad scientist in the plate spinning act. We had a Dalek who was like a dishwasher who had all the plates in the bottom. And, um, and Igor, Igor had a hunchback and a, uh, a bathing cap and big ears and a plumber's friend on the top and sort of lolloped around. And the other thing that was important in Circus Oz was that the, the, there was, it wasn't a curtain there was a sort of segue between the audience coming in and the show beginning. It didn't, it was like it was in, intercut. You can make a choice really, the show starts or there's this sort of in, intercutting. After I left Circus Oz, I went to the Fruit Flies and then I moved to Sydney, partly because I thought it would be really hard to stay in the same city as Circus Oz and not be in it. And in Sydney, somebody asked me to work on a community show with the Italian com community. There was an organisation called FILEF, the Federation of Italian Migrant Workers and Their Families. There was, it was based in Melbourne as well. And so we did a huge show. We researched for about six months with different groups of people, older Italians. And there was a woman called Dorothy Hodenot who was teaching Year 9 at Leichhardt High School. And so we worked with the kids in her kids in year nine. 
With the Pram Factory and Circus Oz, we were interested in vernacular language. So we're interested in how we spoke here, not the sort of, you know, very the BBC English or anything. And so we were also interested in that in other languages. And with the Italians, we used dialect, we used Italian, and we used English in the show. There was about 100 people in it, and we started in a park. And there were these huge beckoning figures on stilts off in the distance going, come to Australia with big houses, big cars. So someone had said that, oh, we thought Australia would have big cars, big houses, big women. And so then everybody moved in to the high school, uh, which was Australia during the 50s and 60s. And then in the 70s, we moved out into the school courtyard and that was like the sort of multicultural and the kids all performed out there. So there were these sort of three sets of movements and three, three shifts. And, and I decided never to translate anything in the, communal sh- in, in the, in the community shows, partly because I thought it, English people are so, what's the word? Um, we're reluctant to learn other languages because most people speak English and most English speakers are monolingual. And I thought it's really good to have to ask somebody else, you know, what does that mean? Because it's like what people experience when they come here if they don't speak the language. And and also, then you, if you can't understand the language, you have to use your other senses to try and figure out what's going on or you can ask someone who's next next to you. So we never translated anything. And there was always in the pieces I worked on, there was a professional team and there was the community team. And I always hoped that people learnt things from each other. So the professional team imparted various skills and experience, but they learned heaps from the research and the experience of people's stories and just people's lives, really. After doing the Italian show, I worked with a group called Sidetrack in Sydney and we did a show called Adios Cha-Cha, which was about um, liberation theology in Latin America and the Philippines. And there'd been a priest, Brian Gore, who'd been working in the Philippines and he'd been a liberation priest. And the liberation priests were on the side of the poor. And so the Catholic hierarchy and the powerful people didn't approve. And And some of them were being killed. In the Philippines, they were being killed by vigilantes. Yeah, so we did that, Adios Cha Cha Cha, which was based in a little village. And again, similar to the circus, you know, there's there's a series of scenes that are sort of intact in themselves or, or contain something within themselves, but there's a sequence. And as a sequence, they make this whole. And there were, you know, Greek Australians, there was a Chilean and there were um, oh, Macedonian, a whole range of different people involved in it. We interviewed people from the Middle East. And, uh, and then after that, I left about 18 months, stayed with them for about 18 months, came back. Then I decided to become a director. I hadn't actually been a director before, but I'd been part of a devising group. And I think I learned to be a director at Circus Oz because I did the running orders. So I think I learned about sequence 
and rhythm. I learned about rhythm and how you dealt with the things that had to happen and things that you could make happen. So I think that was a really useful training ground for me. And then, um, so then I worked all over Australia really with some circus companies, rock and roll circus up in Brisbane, circus company over in Perth, um, in Adelaide. And, but also started working with contemporary performance companies, the Murray River Performing Group up in Albury, Melbourne Workers Theatre here, but always in the same format, music, stories, comedy, dance. And I'd always research history. So I guess I never really knew what it was that I was doing. I just sort of did one thing after the other and I didn't have a, a career plan or anything like that things just unfolded and it's really only in the last few years that I've begun to understand what it is that I might have been doing and it was something to do with history and poetry and um, surprise and and wanting to always I suppose wanting to engage in some sort of imaginative transformation of some kind for everybody involved in whatever I was doing. So after that once I became a director, I then worked with the Walpuri up in La Germanu and a circus project up there over four months. And the elders painted a big um, Goanna dreaming on canvas and we put that over a big crash mat and all the kids carried that in. And then we did a whole series of acts and told some jokes in Walpuri. And then I did a show with the Middle East community after the first Gulf War in Sydney early 90s with Death Defying Theatre, Fiona Winning. And I think the other thing I've always done is work with friends. Like you can tell people have asked me to do things really. Um, and so I have. And uh, so we did that and that was fascinating. You know, people at um, mosques that had rubbish, veg rotten vegetables thrown onto their steps and people women, same thing as happens now, women that had hijabs pulled off their heads and some women had actually put the hijab on in order to have solidarity with people from their com community. So I feel like I, I travelled a lot in Australia, you know, I, I like sort of travelled to other worlds, which was a privilege and um, an honour and illuminating and I stopped making films. I made a couple of films with Mitzi Goldman who's now head of the Documentary Australia Foundation uh, in the 80s and again friends, made films with friends. And then in 2002 I directed a big show called Kanyama Khan which means once upon a time in Arabic and that was um, working with again with a professional team. Alice Garner was in it um, Lisa Mazza, Kavisha Mazella, and about 15 refugees who'd come on boats. So Iraqis, Iranians, Hazaras. And um, that was pretty amazing. And I, I think up until then, I think I'd sort of believed in... I don't know, the sense of Australia being a country of a fair go and a whole range of things like that. But what was happening to them made me again look back at history 
and and I went back to Federation, which I'd never looked at before, really. And and I realised Federation was actually about keeping out people who weren't white. And I thought, oh, those threads. And I read a great piece by um, Chris Sidotti, who'd been the Human Rights Commissioner. And he said something about the twin threads of racism and punishment run through our culture. And I think that's really true. That was a, a sort of extraordinary thing to work on. And then we, we took it to Canberra. Um, and then that kept going really over the next 18 months. We did small versions of it and went out, took it out to halls and com community events of various kinds. A group came from the Philippines called the Mindanao Community Theatre at the end of the 1980s and they, they were very in influential in what I did because they'd been influenced by Augusto Boal who started a movement really called Theatre of the Oppressed and there's also there's a man in Canada, David Diamond, who's taken that and calls it Theatre for Living because he thinks it's a more appropriate term, which it probably is. And he works a lot with First Nations in Canada. But I went and worked with them in Mindanao for a short period of time. And they described themselves as ators, actors, teachers, organisers and researchers. And I, I, you know when you're in a group and people ask you to in, introduce yourself and it's always, I never know what to say because I feel like I do so many different things, you know. And um, it was great to hear people very confidently define themselves in that way and, um, and so that really I've just sort of kept going in that way. Recently I've, I'm part of a small group with two other older women, I'm now 71 and, I, uh, and we've got a group called the Boldies and we did we made an exhibition of ourselves for six weeks in the Footscray Community Arts Centre. It was me and Heather Horrocks and Peter Murray. And I learned a poem a week and would recite. I had a list up on the wall and people could write poems on the wall as well. And would I'd recite, they could choose one from the list and I'd recite it. Heather makes things out of videotape, crochets things out of videotape. And she had a whole sort of her workroom set up made out of cardboard furniture and had little things on display and would do things with people. And Peter was interested in writing, teaching herself to write after having used the computer for a long time. And so she had these beautiful books and was writing very painstakingly and really beautiful writing. And she also had a book where she would hand write things that people wanted to tell her that they wanted kept. So she'd do that. So we did that for six weeks. And then we did a performance of a mass called um, Missa Pro Venerabilibus, which was a secular mass for the venerable and the vulnerable, which had a bit of disco dancing <laughs> and a bit of um, uh, the, the, the communion was elderflower cordial and blueberries and we washed everybody's hands and passed things around, did all that. So that was, um, that's been fun. I don't know what sort of incarnation that will continue in. It's been fun to perform again. Yeah. And I think one of the things I've found quite difficult is because my process is a group process.
I'm quite envious of friends who are photographers or writers or composers who've got a who've got a solo practice or painters. Um, and I don't I don't really have a solo practice and, and I, I'm, I'm sort of struggling to invent one. I have been influenced a lot by poets and by historians and Australian historians like Inge Clendinen and Tom Griffiths um, in particular, Judith Wright, people like that um, and all sorts of poets, Adrian Rich and Anna Akhmatova and yeah, lots and lots of, and, and there there's something about the elusive nature of, of how those historians write and how poets write. And it's akin to music in some way. It's not something happens that isn't logical, that isn't rational, and that is very hard to articulate in words, but something happens. And, uh, and if it works really well, that something can be quite transformational and inspiring and enable us to see the world in a new way and also I think what happens is we think that the world can only be like it is but we can change it we can make it different and it has been different that's why history and I wonder matters. where the peace movement is it's interesting isn't it because the peace movement has been a really big part of things in the past and history is really important and we can see how things have changed and, and when the Iraq war was happening, the second Iraq war, big demonstrations for peace all over the world, the biggest demonstrations ever before a war. And I don't know whether people got this illusion because it didn't have any effect. Or the anti-nuclear anti and, and peace movement are sort of not very visible presently. So I'm trying to think about how to connect myself to something in relation to that, but I don't know how yet. But it's really, you know... Sometimes in the morning I wake up and I, I click on, turn on my computer and I, I look to see whether, you know, a nuclear bomb's been dropped currently. That's the scary bit. Thanks for listening to the Prima Donna podcast. For more information or to subscribe for future episodes, visit primadonnapodcast.com.